The Partially Examined Life relies on your support. To find out how to help in ways that are cheap or even free for you, please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to the Partially Examined Life, episode 245 on fashion. We've been talking to Shahida Bari about her book, uh, Dressed, A Philosophy of Clothes. We covered Jacques Derrida's essay, The Animal That Therefore I Am. And we are in the middle of Michel Foucault's The Ethics of the Concern of the Self as a Practice of Freedom. And we'll get to Susan Sontag's On Style from 1963. What else do we still have to cover here that's relevant in Foucault before we want to get on to Sontag? I want to say something about this concept of freedom and liberation and dress or style, if you will. So Wes mentioned that what Foucault talks about freedom being the condition for resistance, that in essence, the structures of power, of domination exist at all levels. It's not just you're talking about government, you're talking about interpersonal relationships, but that they're fluid. And insofar as there's room for reversing or changing those power dynamics, that's what constitutes freedom. Liberation and freedom are two different things, right? Sorry, resistance? Should I say the possibility of resistance is predicated by freedom? How's that? That relationship is a little, is complicated and unclear to me, but I think he's saying that liberation doesn't guarantee freedom. Absolutely. Although it is total domination would make freedom a a non-starter in his sense. Which is why resistance requires freedom. Yeah, freedom is not the result. Freedom is the precondition for the possibility of resistance. And total domination would mean there's no possibility for resistance, so no freedom. So one thing does not follow from the other. But go ahead and say what you're going to say. I wanted to say two things, one about my own personal experience and one about this Michael Jordan documentary that I've been watching recently, which is all the rage over here. I've been watching it too. It's remarkable. And I write about Air Jordans in the book too. Okay, so good. Then you'll (laughs) totally get this reference. So the first four episodes focus on individual characters that play a role. There's Michael, Scottie Pippen, Phil Jackson, and Dennis Rodman. And I don't know if you were attending to this, but the theme of freedom comes up over and over again, particularly for Michael Jordan and Dennis Rodman. For anybody who's, I don't know how old you are, We are all of an age where we remember this happening in real time. Some of us lived in Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) When Rodman would start wearing makeup and dyeing his hair and came out wearing a wedding dress with Madonna and all this, his articulation of it, which comes up again in in the documentary, is I just wanted the freedom to do what I wanted, to be who I wanted to be. And that the way he dressed was, for him, it was absolutely him exercising his freedom, and he saw it as particularly against the constraints of the very establishment NBA, but also just conventions at the time. It was resistance, it was a rebellion, but he certainly leveraged the way he looked, which included clothes, and then also piercings and tattoos and other sorts of things and makeup, all of which I think function in the, the broader concept of style beyond just clothes. But thematically, I mean, as I was watching this just over the last week, I thought, oh my gosh, this is completely tied into what we're about to talk about this weekend. It's an absolute living embodiment of somebody seeing that there's a structure of domination or of power, and then exploring and pushing the limits of what freedom constitutes within that and seeing what the outcomes of that are, potentially reframing the conversation. I think after Rodman, you see more people getting tattoos. You see all, you know, there's a bunch of different things that happen. 
And it made me think about my own experience in my primary work life, which is technology. So I'm sure there are many industries that are as style deficient and style starved as technology. (laughs) But what marks off, I think, technology more than others is this sense that clothes are utility you know, as exemplified by Jobs who wore, you know, he just said, I'm just going to wear a turtleneck and blue jeans every single day because I don't want to waste brain cycles on having to figure out what to wear. And it comes down to there's a kind of uniform for both the men and women. I have found myself as I've just like Wes, I've become more interested and more caring about the way I'm dressed as I get older. You can't tell it from this Zoom interview, but I thought about what I should wear and should I put on some sort of sparkly jacket and something to impress you, but I just figured I'd wear You look amazing, Seth. You're wearing, it looks like a dragon on your t-shirt. It's an octopus playing the drums, yes. Well, see, I I mean, I'm dazzled by it. (laughs) And I'm touched that you made the effort. I thought very carefully about doing something else, but I think all the time about how I can push the boundaries and use dress to mark myself out as different from everybody else, but not transgress in a way where it takes away from my credibility or becomes a thing in itself. What I want people to do is look at me and say, God, Seth always looks, you know, he's dressed well, he's, he looks sharp, he's not wearing the standard stuff, but not think that somehow that makes me, you know, that I'm somehow like the rip torn of our executive leadership meeting, you know, or something like that. Rip torn, another terrible over 50 reference. I apologize for that. Did you mean Rip Taylor? (laughs) Oh, Rip Taylor. Yes, I'm sorry. Rip Taylor. That's who I meant. I thought you meant Rip Torn, which would also have made sense (laughs) to me. But I I don't believe you about tech professionals being poorly dressed because I was reading about a guy called, is it Vitalik Buterin, who invented a cryptocurrency called Ethereum? Ethereum. Mm Mm-hmm. And he's 25 years old and he has an IQ of 257. (laughs) And he religiously wears tie-dyed t-shirts that are festooned with spaceships, rainbows and wolves. So I I don't believe you about text. But I do think there is a kind of disregard for business dress that is seen as a mark of Mm -hmm. the contrary creative or the dangerously deregulated innovator. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so you you would be disruptive in tech, especially like as a software engineer, if what you did is you showed up in a three-piece suit every day. Because you would be violating the unwritten ethics of that. I work in a med tech now. I had been a professor for a little over a decade before that, and then before I was a graduate student. So this, this conversation that Seth's bringing up makes me think of like the eras of different kinds of communities that had different standards of dress that I lived in. So going from being a postdoc or a graduate student where it was basically, you know, jeans and a t-shirt to being a professor where it mattered, you know, in my relationships with my students, if I looked like I had authority in the room and stuff like that. And then being in a a business environment where interacting with customers or interacting with executives and stuff like that. And there's a kind of signaling going on, but I guess in the context of our conversation here, it has to do with the ethics, the interactions that we have with other people, how we successfully make that connection or uh, communicate our regard for both ourselves as well as for the relationships involved, and that it's sort of constantly invoked. 
I wrote a little piece for the Chronicle of Higher Review in the, in the States, which is an academic magazine. And I was writing about how academics dress and I was delineating certain archetypes, as it were. You know, there is, I remember I studied at Cambridge, which was very austere, the late 90s, early noughties. And I remember there being a professor of modernist literature who was a T.S. Eliot expert, and he would stand at the door of the lecture theatre holding a briefcase and wearing a Homburg hat as though rations had just ended yesterday. And he had a kind of post-war look. And part of the severity was his sort of commitment to that period and the absolute resistance to anything contemporary. And then I had lecturers, and and I still have colleagues now for whom to betray an interest in dress is to betray a certain kind of vanity or a frivolousness. And there's an embarrassment. Um, and this is the old prejudice about dress, that dress is a form of deception. It's a disguise. It's about style over substance. And so there is a kind of academic suspicion of the person who tends to the details of their extravagant tie or their stupidly high heels or their expensive handbag. There's a vanity to it that betrays a lack of real intellectual seriousness or gravity, which I constantly wanted to dispel and contest. I mean, I think it's a mistake to think that Sontag's essay on style is about style in the sense of fashion. But I don't pretend to do that. But it seemed to me that there are ways in which what she's describing, how style is beleaguered, style as a certain set of aesthetic decisions about the form of a work of art or in particular piece of writing that map onto the ways that we might think about dress. And one of the things she says is that there is no such thing as no style. So the idea that you could dress for work or you could be a professor speaking at a lectern in a way that um, dressed in such a way that, that says nothing at all about how you think or how you are is a fiction. Style is not a quantitative thing, she says. There is no such thing as no style. And I was really fascinated by that because I think it does apply to the ways that we think about dress. There is no such thing as not dressing in a way. Whatever you're wearing is meaningful and significant and substantial. It is both stylish and substantial. I want to throw the word authenticity in here as well because I feel like we're looking back to this fundamental mind-body distinction mistake where you might think that someone is being truly authentic, their real self, if it's their soul that's coming through. And it's just <laughs> the, the appearances, the body. In fact, nakedness is, if we have to be physical at all, is going to have to be the authentic style. It's the only thing that's not just covering us up. And the traditional philosophy through Heidegger culminating in post-structuralism is saying, no, actually, there is no true self that's under there. So Foucault specifically, this is why what Foucault's arguing against when he says liberation does not constitute freedom, because if it was just a matter of removing all the constraints, then the true you would come through. And that's just not the way the self is built. The self is something that needs to be cultivated, that needs to be cared for, that needs to be constructed. And so it, there are two Nietzsche quotes. One is, is, become who you are, which is often you know, interpreted as just, you know, that same figure out what your authentic self is. Maybe it (laughs) wasn't there, you know, certainly at birth, it's something that has to be grown, but still there is something that is truly your soul and then make of your life an art, which sounds, you know, if you interpret those two quotes as meaning the same thing, that does seem that there's no, there's just the cultural materials that we have lying about us that we can put together in various ways. And that's how we create not just a presentation, but create ourselves that, you know, that's what we have to work with. And so, you know, if Sontag likewise is, is arguing 
the people she's arguing against are saying style is, is in a literary work is a distraction. It's just you're putting extra poetry in there, just strip it away. You know, this is like me in our earlier episodes reading philosophical fiction saying, I don't want to hear all this. Don't construct a narrative. Just give me an index card with the philosophical points on it. That's what I want. I want the substance. I want the truth. But there's something deeply, you know, just as misguided approach to literature. It's a misguided approach to thinking of the self to say that the presentation is just a shallow, something that's beside the point. No, no, this actually is I see that as a question. You know, when Scotty Pippen says, I'm expressing my freedom, well, what is he doing there? Is he trying to be more authentic or is he just in a more postmodern way playing with the, oh, I could put makeup on just because people say don't put makeup on. It's not that I am trans, you know, or, you know, feel fundamentally that makeup is the true me. It's just I want to do something that messes with conventions. Just for our listeners, Mark meant Dennis Rodman, not Scotty Pippen. <laughs> I'm following because I've been gripped by the documentary. Well, just just to say that I think Sontag is responding to a couple of things. One, she's responding to a, a certain quite tedious form of literary criticism, which is content-driven, which is almost utility-driven. What is the use of this? What, is, what does this mean? But she's also, to my distress, also resistant to what she calls Marxian and Freudian readings too, which she sees as similarly employing a kind of interpretive tyranny, right? You go at the object or the work to understand its Marxist significance, or you extract from it a psychoanalytical meaning. And she thinks that is also misguided. And that there must be a way in which we read what we see and we understand that recognizes style as more than just an embellishment or an accessory to content. A way in which we read and see and understand style as something serious and meaningful in itself, as well as in relation to content. I'm sold on that. I find that really persuasive. The strength in her position, and for our listeners, you definitely want to read this essay. It's a solid and amazing piece of writing, as well as argument. She frames it in terms of epistemology and says, this persistence of the content versus form or content versus style distinction is predicated on this epistemological understanding of the work of art as having to be a statement. So the question is, what is it trying to say? What is it trying to prove? What is it telling us? And then you can dispense with the extravagances of the way in which it does it, right? The how versus the what. And she makes a really interesting move where she says the interpretive relationship of the perceiver or the experiencer with the work of art itself, it takes the form of knowledge, but it's not knowledge in the traditional sense of truth, like knowing a truth. And what you get knowledge of is some kind of experience. It's interactive and it requires the interplay of the perceiver as well as the work of art. In other words, it's much more relational as opposed to the intentional structure of subject and object epistemology. And I thought that was really interesting, particularly in the context trying to relate it back to the notion of dressing and style, where the idea that you dress a certain way or that you present yourself in clothing a certain way is not necessarily a statement, which is kind of the facile way of, you know, like saying, like, uh, I wear my retro black flag t-shirt to kind of like ironically to refer back to this, you know, or whatever. You're not making a statement with your clothes. It's a creative act and you're inviting people to interact with you in an interpretive framework around that. And I thought that was really, really beautiful. The, the term she uses, she says style is a, a plan or a mode of 
sensory imprinting, sensory imprinting, the vehicle for the transaction between immediate sensuous impression and memory. And I find that compelling, this idea of a a sensory imprinting. And I find it speaks to this, the folly of believing that there could be a true or authentic or an interpretive truth inside human beings that is distinct and separable from the ways that they dress. Not that the ways that they dress are expressive of that interiority necessarily, but that there is a more complicated relationship between the putative inside and the outside. That there could be this way of sensory imprinting. And that means we have to read in all sorts of sensitive and alert ways. And that's what I take the essay on style to be. It's an injunction. It's an exhaustion to read sensitively and thoughtfully and responsibly. I think it was Foucault that Judith Butler in our gender trouble discussion was quoting in saying that it's not that there's an inner self, but that the outside is sketched in such a way that it points to an inside. In other words, the inside is a function of the outside. So even though clothes don't express the inner self, the symbology of clothes is such that it points to, it's like creating an inner self or, you know, part of what is creating an inner self that is this fictive social thing that we each assume that everybody else has an inner self that it's then pointing to, you know, so it's actually a function of style to have this illusion of a style-free content inside it. There's a relationship here for me between saying and reading and inner and outer that's going on and, and the communication that we have. So part of the content of the tradition of not wanting our clothing to be authentic to ourselves is that it is utilitarian or it's a kind of mere manifestation. And now we're talking about how Shahida used the word to read, like so that you can you can read somebody in their appearances. And I think that's absolutely true. But there's also the consciousness that we have in our own style of dress that we realize that we're saying something. And sometimes In fact, people are deeply inarticulate in how they speak, even in language with words. And I suspect that the same thing is true with dress. They are different sorts of articulation and the articulation of that relation between how they're dressing and how they're adorning themselves and to what they're saying about themselves. And even if we were to say, okay, there's going to be a relationship of some sort, it's also, I think... There's a judgment about the relative articulateness of that. So that which goes directly to the question of how we read it and how much we read into it and whether we overread into it. I don't know if there's much more for me than that makes it very complicated, right? Because it makes it complicated in I don't know what it is that I'm figuring out because my reading has the problem of interpretation. And it has the added problem that it's not clear that what they're saying is a reflection. Uh, the relationship of what they're saying to what they are or could be or trying to be or not. I find all of that so interesting, Dylan. I try to edge towards that towards the end of the introduction on, on page 19. And one of the things I observe 19 to 20, if you love language, you might find that you love clothes too. Because I detect that they share something in common, which is both a capacity for exactitude. You can be very precise in your language 
just as you can in your dress, and also a capacity for evasion. You can hide in the ways that you speak in the same ways that you can hide in your clothes. And in the book, I'm trying to investigate both of those possibilities, that clothes are ways that we hide as well as ways that we speak, and also that we may speak out of turn. Our clothes may speak against our will. That's up my psychoanalytical. The part section on page 19, one of the things I say, perhaps I'll read it to you, is that when we choose to read our clothes, our task is to find their precise and equitable translation in language. This is a challenge because dress in its fullest range intimates something of the diversity and delicacy of the lived experience to which words only falteringly reach. In dress, we impart some mysterious thought, quality, mood or aspect only inadequately conveyed by any other means. And then I go on to say there are other moments when language seems to be, our clothes seem to be awaiting our clothes. So I talk about the colour turquoise and how exact and precise that colour is. And it is conjured only by that word. And there are particular garments. Similarly, when I describe a beige jacket of mid-length, it is only and exactly a trench coat and nothing else. And so our clothes are sometimes waiting for a certain language. And I think there is a kind of relationship, not always precise, but a relationship between what we're trying to do in language and what we're trying to do in clothes and what we do against our will in language and what we do against our will in our clothes too. You say at the end of the next paragraph, which I had marked, and maybe this is why I was thinking about language in particular, you say this book comes only from the conviction that there may be enclosed that which language cannot contain and something else in language too that might realize the life of clothes that is otherwise left unspoken. Yes, and I think that speaks to, to Mark's sense of the philosophers I'm reaching towards who are similarly interested in something almost intangible but precisely tangible, which is phenomena, the experience of our life, which is constantly eluding language, but is also our great gift and challenge to try and capture. Well, I know you have to go soon. Uh, any last points you want to make, Shantira, before you do? Yeah, just because Seth mentioned the Netflix series about Michael Jordan, which I've been voraciously watching. I write about Michael Jordan's Air Jordans, and this is the paragraph in a section called Shoes. So, so let me read it to you, Seth, and see if it speaks to you. And remember, I'm British, so I'm at arm's length to American basketball, but I, I too was seduced by Jordan. So this is Jordan. His distinctive splayed jump pose was captured in the dramatic photo shoot for Life magazine in the run-up to the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. Both the US men and women's teams won the gold medals that year. Nike, or Nike, seized upon Jordan's remarkable physique, gave him a silhouette, turned it into a graphic, and gave it a name, Jumpman. Strikingly, the pose combined a balletic grand jeté with a slam dunk, not true to Jordan's habitual jumping style on court, but visually arresting. Legs spread in flight, the high-top sneakers unmistakable, their laces visibly lifted by his enormous elevation, his torso taut, an arm outstretched to its farthest reach, a hand seamlessly conjoined to a ball upheld like a sun. It is an enlivened, kinetic animation of Leonardo's Vitruvian man, perfectly proportioned, everlastingly striving. It is what we long to be, even when we are small, sluggish and imperfect. It is the promise of the human form realized. And I wanted to read it to you because I think that's the other thing that our clothes do. We've been talking about freedom and liberation, but the other thing they do is that they enable our human being, what Marx would call our species being, the diversity of our capacities. Our clothes can do that. They're works of art and objects of engineering, and they facilitate our flourishing, particularly when they're worn by someone like Michael Jordan. 
Very nice. Yes, well said. Very nice. And very really nice to get, to hear you read some of that in your voice so we can kind of project that onto uh, the rest of the text. Do you have an audiobook version of your book? Yeah, there, I recorded it over like three days. You can download it somewhere. I don't know if it's out yet, the audiobook, but it is available, yeah. Because you just made me want to listen to it. So. Oh, great. <laughs> yes. Well, you'll hear exactly that. But I stumbled terribly because in England we call Nikes Nikes. Oh, right. Nike, rather than Nike. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, which is rather funny. But yeah, thank you. It was really great. Really enjoyed that. Yeah, thank you for coming and for hooking us up with these readings. This is certainly a lot of familiar stuff, as I've tried to voice, that I, I feel like this is coming out of a history philosophy, but we're getting not just you know a subject matter that maybe has not been treated specifically like this before, but also, like I was a little as maybe my comment about philosophical novels earlier indicated, I'm a little impatient of style in philosophy. I'm a little impatient about Derrida and folks like this. And so your book reads very poetically. And I was kind of like, I'm not sure what I think of this. And I showed it to my wife and she just like, oh, this is so fun. This is great. It was like exactly that quote that you read about, you know, toward the end of the intro. And I know in in listening to some of your other uh, lectures and things, we can't, avoid the topic entirely of sort of sexism in philosophy and in who we're presuming are the readers of philosophy and what topics they're interested in. Am I overstating that this seems like this is perhaps, you know, going to be of general interest to a lot of women that would not otherwise read philosophy? Have you found that so far? I wanted it to be for everybody, but it's true that my constituency in writing as in life are women and gay men, and I embrace that. But I would so I would just say <laughs> that I remember giving a version of the, the book or a kind of praise of the book at a, a philosophy event, and I remember a, a rather graying and severe philosophy professor putting his <laughs> hand up and asking the first question, insisting on asking the first question. And he said, Dr. Bari, uh, this is all very interesting, but I'm not sure that any of the thinkers I admire care about their clothes. And I remember my heart sank. But then I was talking to him and I I said, look, you're wearing jeans and your jeans are connected to 50s Americana. They're connected to a region in France called Nîmes, from which we get the word denim, from Genoa in Italy. Most jeans are made in a region of India. It's impossible that you could think that these very ordinary jeans that you've not given a second thought, philosopher jeans. They connect you to so many people in the world and that we should all care about our clothes. Once we care about our clothes, we'll care about the people who make them. And that's the most important thing. And can I just say, from those of you I can see on my my Zoom screen, you're all very snappily dressed. And so the idea that philosophers are not interested in dress seems to me an important misunderstanding that we should correct. And what you're doing, public philosophy for general audiences, is really important. I do it too at the London School of Economics in Britain. We run a forum for public philosophy. And it's the same kind of endeavor as you guys to try and make sense of things and to open up philosophy for broader audiences. And I can't think of more noble work. Well, thanks. Yeah, thank thank you (laughs) for that. Before you left, I wanted to comment on one of the things that I really like about the book. As we mentioned earlier, there's something, and you just mentioned just now, that thinking seriously about fashion or about dress Taking it seriously is its own kind of audacity, but as you, I think, per persuasive about, it's something that's so in front of us everywhere, it's kind of amazing that we wouldn't take it seriously. Yeah. And one of the consequences, I think, of that is that there's a kind of a full dose of a kind of phenomenology 
I know that's a kind of um, overloaded word in philosophy. I don't mean in a technical way, but I mean in sort of uh, looking out at the world and as you, you did, having specific kinds of dress or kinds of fashion, tackling each one of them in turn and uh, focusing on them. And I think that that process, you end up sort of articulating a set of questions more than coming up with a bunch of different answers. And I think that's one of the things that I I was enjoying about the sections that I read was really seeing more threads to pursue. Yeah. What a perfect metaphor with which to end as well. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to pull on my frayed jumper and completely unravel me, but yes. But And also that is what philosophy does, isn't it? It seems to me one of the the things I try to say in the book that is that clothes are about being responsive to the world. That is how I understand ethics. And the job of philosophers is to be responsive, to be susceptible to the world. And clothes do that. Philosophy does that too. Definitely. Lovely talking to you all. Thank you for having me. So we want to continue a little more after Professor Bari's departure. I guess first, the Sontag article, are we agreed that we want to next episode? This was so good that we want to treat it, you know, with our normal care. And also, it was the second in a collection against interpretation in other essays. I looked at a little bit of against interpretation. Good, because I, yeah, it'd be nice to go into the argument in this essay in detail and I'd like to uh, sketch that out for listeners because it's it's I think it's really important. And then we could read the other essay on interpretation. So it would be two essays by Sontag against interpretation and uh, on style. I like that idea. All right, so we don't have to deal with on style anymore here then because we'll be doing that quite a bit next time. But what in the Foucault and the Derrida and our just our overall discussion of clothes, other things we were seeing in her book, what else jumped out at you? We want to go into a little more detail on. I want to circle back to just this notion. I felt like the idea that there's a way of demarcating our human exceptionalism by virtue of of clothing. And even raising the issue sort of spurred by Derrida that, you know, the concept of being naked only exists. Nakedness only exists if you have a concept of covering nakedness, right? It's almost as if you need to have a notion of being clothed in order to have a notion of being naked. And that there's implicitly or immediately the question of, well, why would you want to be clothed? In terms of sheltering from the elements is one thing, but the idea of shame, I found that really interesting that it seems to be just so immediately present and there. And maybe it's also because I'm, you know, I have a young child in the house and (laughs) there's constant questions of nakedness for clothing that that are constantly going on, whether it's a fight to make her put on clothes and wear a shirt or if she get in the pool or, you know, should we be clothed in front of her? Like at what point are children too old where they're not supposed to see their parents naked? You know, that kind of stuff. It's just all of this is very present to me. So I thought that was funny and interesting. I mean, Derrida goes down a bit of the road of Genesis, which I think is pretty standard and explicit in interpreting the the Garden of Eden episode of that our being clothed is directly related to our knowledge, particularly our ethical knowledge of good and evil. And that would be directly related to our shame. And so that our human exceptionalism is reflected in the fact that we are clothed and that we feel that we ought to be. But that is there, the link is made to our knowledge of good and evil, our knowledge of our, our knowledge of ourselves as ethical beings. I didn't see him disagreeing with that. Yeah, is there anything to be gotten further 
out of the Derrida essay, it was definitely an introduction to a longer thing. And I still am not really clear on what his point is going to be. But the lens through which I was interpreting it is this, you know, basically Heideggerian thing. And I guess adding in the animal does add an element. I think the boober, who's very much into this face-to-face confrontation with the other, the Levinas as well, I think animals did come up in boober, you know, when you have that. In fact, it's much easier to lock eyes with my dog. Like, I love doing that. Like, and dogs love doing it too. Like, I can't just do that with people. Like, I can't even with my wife, like, just stare at each other in the eyes. Like, that's weird. That's, you can't do that for so long without it raising questions. But with your pet, you can do it as long as you want. And it's very freeing for me that, you know, they're sort of quasi personhood that you get to have that interaction, but yet not have the judgment and the social interaction. And yes, I can, you know, as long as I'm not afraid of my, uh, my cat scratching my exposed parts, <laughs> I can jump around naked in front of my cat. And I don't feel ashamed about that. Dare to ask, what happens to the fraternity of brothers when an animal enters the scene? And he says, you know, looking at this animal, it makes me think of this absolute alterity of the neighbor. Nothing makes him think more of that than when I see myself seen naked under the gaze of the cat. What did you guys make of that? Was there anything philosophically pungent about those quotes? I feel like that's the same point, too, that Shadihara mentioned when she was talking about, was it Buber was talking about the horse? I think she mentions talking about Buber, who is, when he's petting a horse, he has the experience of radical alterity, where he says, like, mm. you know, just this horse is so radically other, it brings forth the reckoning with the thou and thou, right? This, yeah, this is page 211, 212. I doubt he got the opportunity to see an octopus at the zoo, but I, that's what I totally get. Like, <laughs> that it has an eyes, but it's not. It's it, not. it has eyes, it, it, but it is not something like me. And then it forces you to confront that radical alterity. And Wes, did you, get, you were very silent on the Derrida portion. Did you get anything that you enjoyed out of this essay at all? I mean, it's not productive for me to talk about this since I think it's so bad and It was interesting to me as another foray, you know, we've long talked about having a Derrida episode and reading this made me think, I don't want to do that. Like, I want to learn what deconstruction is, but I would rather read a secondary source than maybe, you know, kind of like our first foray into Lacan. We've read uh, some Derrida stuff. Maybe I would read another 10 pages, but there's no goddamn way I'm going to read 50 pages of Derrida. I would rather read somebody else you know, with an analytic training or just who's not such a pleased with his own poetic style, that it seems like a bunch of uh, non sequiturs is what Shadiyar was saying. Yeah, it just annoys me too much. I don't find when I delve into it, like, this seems like an interesting point, but it, it's a point that I already feel was totally made by other things I've read. When I peel away the layers of the onion that I can peel away here, I'm not getting anything that adds to the world. He's just dressing up in a different way of presenting other things, but maybe I just am ignorant. Have we already bashed on Derrida style enough in other episodes that you guys don't want (laughs) to? I surfed along until I found the nuggets that I could grab a hold of and (laughs) didn't worry too much about the stuff that seemed to be. The this that is not a this that is also a this. I didn't worry about it. I just am wondering if my intolerance of that is effectively countered by Susan Sontag's On Style essay and I guess the same goes for Barry's own style. It is very, you know, there's a lot of literary devices. The 
very beginning of the book, before the introduction, is just a series of kind of case studies, which seems like how she does throughout. And in fact, case studies makes it sound way more legalistic than it is. It's just as somebody would write in a novel describing the dress of somebody in a certain movie, describing Madonna's clothes in her early videos. I think she was making a positive case why this sort of presentation that is more imagistic, that is getting, you know, literary in the sense of it's getting at the edges of what words can convey, that there actually is something, some advantage to that kind of thing, and that my preference for more boiled down, less overtly stylized prose is actually making me miss something in phenomenology that is very important. You know, that is just part of this old time philosophical mistake that I keep referring to in various ways that that boils down to the mind-body distinction. Think about mapping that insight, Mark, onto your experience of seeing people. So part of the book, she talks about just experiencing seeing people in clothes or, or hearing the sound of denim swish against this and, you know, just walking amongst a crowd. And mind you, she's from London, so she's probably used to being surrounded by a wide variety of people in a density that people in Madison, you, you're not used to. But what would be your experience of walking along the street if everybody was just wearing the same thing and the fabrics didn't make any sort of noise That's the type of impression I think she's trying to give is like a recognition that this diversity and this invitation to engagement and interpretation is out there constantly surrounding us. But I think also that Mark is articulating the difference between the kind of phenomenology where you're engaging in articulating, say, in one instance, the sensory experience or other kinds of experiences, and then the boiling it down to what your conclusions are out of that. And I hear him saying that he feels like he has been impatient with the former in preference for the latter, that don't give me the 25 pages of articulation and exploration of the lived experience and then follow up with the conclusions of that. Just give me the freaking conclusions because that's where the meat is. And the question is how important it is the relationship between those conclusions and the uh, articulation of the lived experience. Yeah, if you think of Husserl's phenomenology, that's all about getting into the essences. You know, he really doesn't talk. He's very far removed from Sartre or somebody like that. And I really have, over the years, really come to appreciate the more descriptive type of phenomenology to the extent that I'm concerned in these pretty much pop episodes with just like, Oh, what are these weird conceptions I have about gender roles in, in cinema or the function of comedy or, I don't know. There's just so much room for getting at your every, as part of the know thyself, you know, and also phenomenology is not just about knowing thyself. It's about knowing the essences of things, but just, you know, that the cultural world of there's just so many nooks and crannies to explore that I think I'm much more tolerant of. Yet I still was grateful. At this point, that we didn't read more of Shantira's book because it is not a style. It's not like Derrida, where it's like pulling teeth. In fact, it's a it's a very nice style. And maybe the audiobook is the solution, the way to get into this. I don't know. Did you guys read a lot farther into this book? Did you find yourself seduced by, captivated by the style that you wanted to, you know, keep pouring through and and read what she had to say about all these different types of clothing? I picked up different sections of it, and I was enjoying it, yes. Yeah, same here. And in fact, I I have people 
including my wife and my life with whom I'm going to share it. One of my read cohorts, she's like a personal style person. She works with people to help them define style. And I'm desperate to get this book into her hands because I think it would be the perfect fit, you know, and it's exactly the kind of thing that I was very energized doing these readings. I don't have the same kind of like visceral reaction to Derrida that some of you, aka Wes, have, but it annoys me. But I also think that there's probably some meat on the bone. I try to give him some credit because there are certain, you know, I did have a, a run in with him, so to speak, in in my past where I felt that there was a really fruitful interchange. So I do find him very tedious and hard to read at times. And I did not feel the same way. Sontag's amazing. I did not feel the same way about her, uh, about Bari's book. Although it felt like it was suggesting, 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 suggesting. And, you know, our implicit motivation as philosophers is we want the argument and the conclusion. That's the content piece if you talk about philosophy. And this is something that it came up in the conversation, we didn't pursue it, but we've had numerous conversations over the past decade about, is this person a good philosopher or are they just a good writer? And do you have to be a good writer to be a good philosopher? We've talked about that numerous times where we've struggled. Is it worth fighting through somebody's obscure prose and convoluted arguments to get to some brilliant insight? Or... Is there an obligation, or at least if not an obligation, it, it makes good sense to try to write in a clear and consumable way if you're trying to get your point across. You mentioned Husserl, who I think is such a horrible writer. I, I, I have no interest. I don't want to read Husserl. I don't care if he was the smartest guy ever. I just can't take it. Like Just coming close to his prose is is toxic to me. And yet I don't have that experience with... Hegel, who's an obscurantist of a different color, so to speak. But, and there's, you know, just recently, so a friend of mine was posting on Facebook about how the Miller translation, you know, like there really aren't any good translations of, of Hegel. And even if there were, <laughs> it's like Hegel is Hegel. And so thinking about the way people write and style versus content, if you're just thinking about philosophy, not literature, but what we consider the great philosophers, Kant, Descartes, you know, Sartre, Hume, whoever, do we distinguish that? Do we think because philosophy is about arguments that you can extract the arguments out of the text and just dispense? Could we summarize critique of pure reason? I don't know what, exactly what Wes thinks, but I think that we've talked about the challenges of Kant as a writer. But I mean, all of those philosophers, I think we regularly comment on both the quality and the ease of reading them and the different experiences of reading them. So reading Nietzsche is a completely different experience than reading Kant. And I think that reading Nietzsche is different than just getting the cliff notes from him. And I think that's actually true of all the philosophers. You get something extra and different out of their writing itself. And part of it is the way they write and how well they write. And some of them is just the conclusion that they are just terrible writers. And so you're having to sort of overcome that. And some of them are great writers and maybe there's something to be overcome about that. I'm just wondering, you know, is Derrida an acquired taste? If I spoke French, would it be more lovely to me? I think Hegel is an acquired taste, <laughs> definitely. The acquisition is that as hard as it is, you can drill into it and really, by carefully doing a close reading, 
you can decode it and then it becomes, oh, okay, now this is fun. This is that I'm getting the enjoyment of good philosophy out of it. Whereas for when I tried to do a close reading with Derrida a while ago on, you know, something we covered on the podcast in our Saussure, et cetera, episode on a line by line basis, I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. I felt like I could do it on this. I actually like this essay quite a bit better than the other Derrida we read. Maybe it was just a better translator. Maybe the fact that it was a lecture had something to do with it. If we had chosen this for a reading, I would have gotten through it and it would have been okay if we had, you know, read more than the uh, 12 pages or whatever we assigned ourselves. But I have not acquired the taste yet. Let me just put it that way. Well, I look forward to talking more about the Sontag. Yes, come back next time and hear us talk about that. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback on this. You can comment at partiallyexaminedlife.com. You can go to our Facebook page, our Facebook group. You can tweet at us. Our closing song is called Clothe Me in Ashes by Casey Clifford, whom I interviewed for Nakedly Examined Music, episode 121. Get that at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Thanks so much and good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.
Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.